This is Corey, writer and producer of the Who Killed My Mother podcast. Before you jump into this episode, I just wanted to remind you that if you visit whokilledmymother.com forward slash newsletter, you can join my mailing list. When you do, I'll send you bonus audio episodes, the autopsy report, and other freebies just for being a listener of the show. I promise it's really free and I'll never do anything weird like sell your email for Starbucks points, so check it out if free stuff is your thing. And don't forget that there are also links to three free books in the show notes of this episode, so be sure to grab those too. And even if free stuff isn't your thing, I want to thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. A moment of silence for the long-awaited death of an uneasy mind. And the belt I've worn all my life, ever tied across my chest, removed, put to bed. But then I will pick up the phone. I will dial her number and find no one is waiting. From the poem After Everything I'll Miss Her, written by me, and this is the true story of who killed my mother. When I wake, I see I've missed a call. Mom, the screen says. I decide to listen to the voicemail first before returning her call. It's important to prepare myself for conversations with my mother. They are, in their own way, treacherous battles fought over deep ravines. Sudden drops abound. The voicemail will give me a clear read on what I'm walking into, a glimpse at the emotional landscape I'm being asked to traverse. Will it be another plea for money? Or an emotional whirlwind where she tells me how stuck she feels, how trapped and scared about her future? Maybe complaints about the no-good heroin addict brother who steals her cash and sometimes beats her. Perhaps she just needs a good cry about her mother, my grandmother who died just four months ago. Listening to her, being there for her in these ways are all that I can offer now. So I listen to the message. But it isn't my mother's voice. The call that came through at 8.58 on the morning of July 4th, 2020, is from her brother. In the 19-second message, he says, Corey, it's Joe. I need you to call me right now. I need you to call me right now. If my voice is putting fear in you, that's good. It's about your mama. I need you to call me right now. Putting the fear in me? That's good. What the hell is he talking about? I listen to the message twice. With each second, my heart climbs higher from my ribcage up into my throat and knocks against my vocal cords. When my wife asks what's wrong, I can't answer her. It's impossible to speak. Now it's 9.41 a.m. and I call him back, but he doesn't answer. Babe, what's happening? Kim asks again, are you okay? I'm shaking and not from the cold. I'm afraid of what's coming. I try again at 10.01, but he doesn't answer for a second time. He's going to tell me she's dead, I say, refreshing the home screen of my phone over and over and over as if this is going to summon a call. It finally rings at 10.06. I skip the polite greetings. I got your message. What's going on? 
Your mom is gone, he says. And the world stops. The silence in my dark bedroom of my house stretches infinite. What? I ask. She's gone. Your mom is gone. Here my mind divides itself. There is a quarry in the bed under the covers, listening to the words being poured rapid fire from my uncle's lips. Then there is the quarry who's outside of herself, watching it all, observing this event as if from a great distance. This quarry is noting my apparent shock, my disbelief, as if it's happening to someone else. I finally managed to ask what happened. I came into her room this morning and found her dead in her bed. She was blue, totally blue. I'm unsure if he's crying or if his voice is shaking with adrenaline. The three dogs in the house run yapping in the background. My treacherous mind thinks dogs will eat a corpse. I hope he's closed the door. Instead, I say, where is she now? In her room? I called the police and they're on their way. To tell you the truth, I'd expected myself to be more prepared for this moment. For years, I feared and dreaded this conversation. My mother had so many near misses over the years, it would have been impossible to reach adulthood without imagining her death. I believe these imaginings began when I was eight, and my mom disappeared for a few days. Her car had been found in a ditch. She'd been drunk and had driven it off the road. Then she left with the first man who found her. Since then, I'd known it was only a matter of time before someone would make this call, and in it they would tell me that my mother had died in some tragic, heartbreaking way. But now that it's here, to my surprise, I'm disbelieving. I just spoke to her yesterday. She was fine. She was in better spirits than she had been in weeks. How could she possibly be dead? Then he asks me about the insurance policy. Do you have an insurance policy on her? How in the world would I have an insurance policy on her, I ask. When my wife and I got our insurance policies, a woman with a medical kit came to our house. In our dining room, she'd drawn our blood, measured us, weighed us, had us fill out detailed medical questionnaires with official-looking ink pens. They made sure we weren't secretly on death's door looking to scam the system. From this experience, I assumed all policies had the same requirements, but my uncle is quick to inform me otherwise. Oh no, he assures me. You can take up to $50,000 out on a person without them even knowing. This is news to me, and such a specific number, I think. So I tell him that's not what happened when we got our policies. You must have gotten a big policy, he says. How much did you get yours for? I don't want to tell him. Somehow in my mind, equating my life with the dollar amount seems like a mistake with this man. I don't know, I say. I don't remember. Yes, you do. You're lying. You sure are from this family, aren't you? I say nothing to this. Well, never mind, he adds quickly. I'd hoped maybe you'd get a little something out of it, but it's fine. Now he sounds angry. I'll take care of everything. I've done it for Nana, and I'll do it for everyone else, so just don't you worry about a damn thing. Though he won't, in fact, take care of everything. I'll be the one that handles my mother's cremation and her minuscule estate. But those are problems that I don't yet realize I have. I ask him how she died. I don't know, he says. I went in there and she was blue. 
Are they going to do an autopsy? And at this he laughs. Of course they're going to do an autopsy. When someone as young as she is dies, they ain't going to just let it go. They're going to check it out. Well, what do you think happened? I can't imagine people just walking into bedrooms and finding dead people. But according to the internet, about 20% of people die at home. She was so blue, he says again, as if this is supposed to mean something to me. I think she took something. I don't know how, but I know what an overdose looks like, and she's blue just like that. I need to... I need to check my safe. I need to make sure everything's in there. This startles me. Until this moment, I'd been under the impression my mother had died because her poor health had finally caught up to her. My mother has had a litany of health problems for years. But here, he's alluding to the possibility of an overdose. That somehow my mother got a hold of something took something, and it killed her. But my mother said she'd been clean for months, on absolutely nothing at all, not even the Celexa and Seroquel prescribed to her. Joe supposedly had taken all of her pills and locked them up in a safe back in March. The safe he's referring to is his drug safe, where he keeps his heroin, pills, and anything else he buys from the street. My shock begins to morph into something harder, not quite anger, but I'm moving in that direction. You said she hadn't taken anything since February. You said you'd locked up even her pills. You said that she was 100% clean. That's true, I did lock them up, he insists. Then how could she have taken something, I ask. I don't know, maybe she broke into my safe. I try to imagine my mother, 5'4", 130 pounds, breaking into a safe like some safecracker from Ocean's Eleven. It doesn't help that my mother is, was, nearly blind in both eyes and had even lost her glasses a few months ago. I'd been trying to get Joe to take her to the eye doctor, volunteering to pay for the exam and the glasses myself, but he claimed they'd been closed. Does he really expect me to believe that she cracked it open with a bobby pin or something like that? Or that somehow she lifted it and dashed it against the concrete until it opened? This idea that my mother would have the patience fortitude or strength to crack open a safe is ridiculous. I'm unable to hide my disbelief, and I know he must hear it. You think she took something, I say. All I know is I went in there and found her and she's blue. The color of her face is dead blue. He must mistake my silence for resignation and moves to end the call. Listen, your mother didn't love anyone, he tells me, but she loved you. If heaven is what you want it to be, she's with you now. Hear the tears that have been building in the corners of my eyes finally spill over. I know I'm never going to hear from you after this and know that you don't like me much. He pauses, probably expecting me to do the obligatory, No, no, don't say that. I don't hate you. I say nothing. So he adds, I know you haven't forgiven me for what happened all those years ago, so, so long ago. He's right, though I'm not sure it's so much a matter of forgiveness as trust. I don't trust him. Even as a child, even before he gave me a real reason to keep one eye open, to never turn my back, he'd felt dangerous. And I have the good sense, most of the time, to stay away from what's dangerous. So he's right. When this call ends, I have no reason to speak to him ever again. I'd only tolerated him this long because he was the official caretaker of my mother, because speaking to her often meant going through him. Faced with this fact, 
I do what I think is best. I forgive you, I choke out. I forgive you for everything. What an idiot I was to believe forgiveness could be so easy. It will be four hours before I receive the second, more illuminating phone call. In the meantime, I have my cry in bed, my wife Kim rubbing my back, pouring apologies into my ears, the usual, I'm so sorry's, and it's gonna be okay. When this peters out, I get up, I let the dog out and begin the usual Saturday morning clean, but I don't make it very far. In my office closet, I find a large folder of photographs that Mom sent me years ago. I comb through them, laying them out in rows on my wood floor. My grandmother, dead. My grandfather, dead. My aunt, dead. My mom, dead. Joe is the last one. As I stare at each glossy face, my mind keeps reviewing the last four months of my mother's life over and over in my head. At this point, I still believe it's her body that must have killed her. And there are many suspects in this scenario. There was her hepatitis C. Back in the 90s, she'd gotten involved with a bad guy. I was told later that this bad guy actually happened to have been her first husband. Fun fact, my mom has married three times in her life, and all three men shared the same first name. When David No. 1 resurfaced sometime in the early 90s, he introduced my mother to cocaine. Not the stylish kind that starlets snort in the bathroom as they retouch their eyeliner. No, this cocaine was shot into the veins, and sharing dirty needles with the ex-husband you married at 16 is a bad idea, folks. Fortunately, the evil ex nor the needle stuck around, but the hepatitis C did. Living with hep C made her tired, nauseous, and made her need to quit drinking imperative. And she did eventually quit drinking. I was proud of her for that. And if it wasn't the hep C or its complications that killed her, there was still coronavirus to consider. At four months into the global pandemic, she would have been easy pickings for a virus like that. She'd been smoking since she was 14, reminding me as often as she could that she'd quit only for the nine months she had been pregnant with me. And when the nurse asked me if I wanted to breastfeed, she'd crowed, I'd said, hell no, give me a cigarette. But look at you, you're perfect she'd always add, beaming every time she told me this story, proving how she believed her months of sacrifice had paid off. Assuming that she hadn't been killed by hepatitis, the coronavirus, or even some undiagnosed smoking-related illness or cancer, there's her most recent symptom to consider, her memory loss. It began in March. I called to check in, and in the course of our conversation, she casually said, "'So you know Nana passed.' I hadn't known that her mother and my grandmother had passed away. In fact, I'd called on March 3rd to check on the family to see if they'd fared all right against the tornado that had blown through Nashville the night before. My uncle had been the one to answer the phone, he's always the one to answer the phone, and he had said, we're all right here, and hung up on me. When, in fact, my grandmother had been dead for two days and my mother had been in the hospital. Either he was too high on heroin to think that this might be something I'd want to know, or he consciously lied to me for some reason I don't understand. No one told you? My mother had said, as if there were legions of family members that could have stepped up and informed me, and not, in fact, just one lying man. No, he didn't tell me. It had been the internet that had told me that Nana's memorial had been on March 1st, 
My mother's outrage on my behalf was touching until the next time I called. So you know Nana died, she said again. You told me. Oh, did I? Don't you remember? I've been having problems remembering things. What do you mean you're having problems remembering things? What kind of things? Here she pauses. Well, I was in the hospital for ten days, and now I just... I just don't remember things well. This is the first I hear of the hospital, at which point I ask to speak to Joe, but she doesn't hand the phone over. Well, what the hell happened? Why were you in the hospital? My mother asks Joe, and I can hear him through the phone say, You had a nervous breakdown. I had a nervous breakdown, she parrots. At which point I launch a full interrogation, which gets me nowhere. Joe doesn't clarify what landed my mother in the hospital, but instead spends five minutes assuring me that they, presumably the doctors, wanted to institutionalize her, but he, the good brother that he was, had saved her from that dark fate. I got her out of there fast. I wasn't going to let them take my sister. What caused the breakdown? Her pills? Because I'm not letting him go until he tells me something. Yeah, she took her pills wrong and then went in. Went in, I'm assuming, to the hospital. But they wanted to institutionalize her, and I said, hell no, and I got her out of there. Wait, what about the pills? I've locked them up. They're in my safe. She can't get in there. She's fine. So why the memory loss, I wondered. Was it some reaction to being taken cold turkey off her meds? To clarify, my mother has needed mental health medication for decades. She'd been diagnosed as manic depressive when I was a child. Later, the industry would start calling it bipolar disorder, specifically bipolar disorder 1, which is characterized by high periods of mania. Later, they added schizoid affective disorder onto her diagnosis because sometimes she suffered from delusions and lost touch with reality. For all of this, she was given prescriptions for Celexa and Seroquel. But mental health meds are tricky, especially if you're an alcoholic. She had had bad reactions before, but that was back when she was still drinking. And in these reactions, her psychosis would be very pronounced. Alcohol and medication doesn't mix, but she'd stopped drinking a long time ago. So what had happened this time? She's much better off of them, he tells me, much more steady. But what about the memory loss? He assures me that she's remembering more and more each day, and that he thinks this will pass. She just needs time to adjust. Are you sure that's safe? I ask. A lot safer than the alternative, he tells me. I consider this. If someone stops taking a medicine after a long time, there will be side effects, right? I mean, I'm no doctor, but I'm also not there in the house with them. On no front am I qualified to know what care she needs. But the memory loss concerns me, and it makes me wonder if it was masking a more serious problem, especially when Joe tells me about the seizure. He says they were standing in the kitchen, my mother at the counter making herself a sandwich, and then my mother's eyes rolled up into her head and she dropped, those were his words, she dropped, and began to have a seizure turning blue. He did compressions, trying to get her to breathe and was successful in resuscitating her. I ask him why a seizure requires resuscitation and he doesn't seem to understand. Why didn't you take her to the hospital? I asked him. Call an ambulance or something. If it happens again, I will, he said. I absolutely will. I have a terrible habit. I rationalize everything. 
Sometimes this is great. Sometimes it's actually nonsensical. So I had rationalized that my uncle didn't want to take my mother to a hospital because it was a deadly pandemic, and that his fears were natural rather than malicious. But all of this evaporated when my phone rings at 2.25 that afternoon. It's been four hours now of me not cleaning my house, me lying on the sofa with my pug Charlie snoring on my chest, when the national area number flashes on my screen. Hello? Is this Corey? A man asks. Letha's daughter? Somewhere in the background, someone speaks, and the man says, Yeah, I'm talking to her daughter now. My heart takes off like a rabbit who hears a twig snap. Yes, this is she. Yes, ma'am, I'm Detective Barnes with the Nashville Police Department. What can you tell me about your mom and her brother's history together? Oh, I, um... Who, um... I can't string together a thought. Violent. I finally spit out as if one word will answer his question. He, um, he's hit her before. He's choked her. My breath is shaking, but I'm trying to pull myself together. He struck her with a glass ashtray in 2005. It caved in her skull, and she had emergency surgery to let the blood out. She almost died. Oh God, I'm babbling. And I'm trying not to relive that day, but the memory swells like a wave and overtakes me. Already I'm walking into the dark hospital room to find my mother, small, wrapped like a doll in the hospital bed. The layers of gauze make her head look swollen. From her left side, a tube runs out, draining the blood that would otherwise drown her brain. Kill her. In the days that followed, she could smile at me but not say my name. She couldn't walk without help. She had to relearn how to speak, how to move her body. And I had to watch. Me sitting in the rehabilitation room, her asking me to shave the other half of her head so it would all grow back even. Me with a razor, doing a terrible job of it, because I'm trying to be careful of the 60-plus staples holding her scalp together. That's been my role in this life, it seems. To bear witness to her suffering, and have absolutely no power to prevent it. I wrestle with the old, desperate need to save her, to protect her, my mother. But the detective is still talking. The condition in which her body was found, and the state of her room, her clothes, and he keeps changing his story. The state of her body, her clothes, her room? Is he telling me that my mother was beaten to death? That her final moments must have been full of pain and terror? that the ashtray had come down again, but this time there was no one to make a call, to alert the police and get her to the hospital on time? I feel like someone has kicked me in the guts. What do you mean about her body? I ask. She was in the bedroom. The room looked like it had been torn up. Her clothes were all kind of askew. He said they had a fight about money. Her room was torn up? A fight about money? A fight about money? Is he telling me that my mother was beat to death by her brother over money? My fear transforms into raging anger. The only money in that house was hers, I tell him. He didn't even have a job. How could he steal her own money? He stole money to buy his stupid drugs. The detective has no answer for this, and I'm shaking. You think he hurt her? I ask him. His story keeps changing. First he said he found her in the bedroom, 
Then we started asking questions, and he said he came home and found her in the floor, and that he put her in the bedroom hoping she'd be all right. He says he thinks she got into his heroin and took that. My mother has never done heroin in her life, I tell him. She had vices, absolutely, but heroin she detested. To be honest with you, ma'am, I think he did something to her. I just don't know that I can prove it. I feel sick. I'm hoping I can get through this call before throwing up. There's still the outstanding warrant on him for the strangulation charge, the detective tells me. We're going to book him for that. We're taking him in now, and I'll call you once we get the autopsy results and let you know what we find about your mother. The strangulation. Right. When my mother had called me from her bathroom and whispering into the phone had said, he strangled me, I'd called the police. I told them to go out there to the house and to check on her, just like I had for the ashtray incident. They'd noted the bruising. But my uncle is very good at disappearing before the police show up. He's pulled that magic trick more times than I can count. So they hadn't taken him in February. Or any time since, it seemed. Later, I would be on the phone with a very patient AT&T representative for over an hour trying to find the exact time I'd call the report the strangulation. Turns out I had called at 2.47 p.m., Saturday, February 16th, 2019. February 2019. Just 17 months ago. And now that felt like another lifetime. Once we do the preliminary examination, I'll give you a call. You'll call me after the autopsy, I say. Yes, ma'am. Tomorrow or Sunday, it should be. The call ends, and I sit there holding my phone. In the beats that follow, I cross some surreal line between reality and fiction. This can't be happening. I didn't just get a call from a detective. He didn't just tell me my mother might have been murdered by my uncle. I'm not waiting on the results of an autopsy. I write crime fiction. I don't live in it. I research and plan and unfold investigations to entertain people. Homicide detectives aren't supposed to call me. Murderers are supposed to be faceless mafioso or perverts who bury their victims in the deep dark woods. He's not supposed to be my own flesh and blood. He's not supposed to be a man that my mother relied on, trusted. This can't be happening, I say to no one. It just can't be. I probably don't need to tell you that when this call with the detective ends, I'm not okay. The tears that follow make my good cry in bed that morning seem like a mild malaise. Sobs rack my body until I can't breathe. Yet by some miracle, I manage to hold in the worst of it until Kim leaves, agreeing to do the weekend grocery trip that I've been, understandably, excused from. In truth, she probably wants a break from all this crying. I can't blame her. Regardless, the moment she closes the front door, I collapse. My knees hit the rug in our living room, and I wail. Apologies pour from my mouth until I'm wheezing, choking on my own snot and spit. I cry for my mother's shore. I can't imagine a death like the one the evidence alludes to. Such a death brings up all my old codependent feelings of helplessness, 
reminding me again how many times I've tried to get her out of bad situation after bad situation and how I have always, always failed. The words I cry aloud on the floor of my living room, my arms wrapped around me, rocking myself back and forth into oblivion, don't emerge from fear or even grief. I am drowning in guilt. I'm sorry, I cry. I'm so sorry I chose myself over you. I'm so sorry, Mama. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And I did choose myself. After my mother's ex calls to tell me that she's found my mother unconscious, after she describes the goose egg on her head and shares my grandmother's week, oh, her and Joe just got into it again. After the emergency surgery, after the weeks of rehab, after me shaving her head in a handicapped bathroom with a disposable razor, I choose myself. When she was healing, after she relearned how to talk, but wasn't yet walking well, she agreed to come live with me. It wasn't ideal for me. I was a busy college student taking classes even in the summer so I could graduate with my bachelor's in December. I'd spent money and time I didn't have fixing up the spare room of my little two-bedroom duplex for her so that she'd feel comfortable and welcome. I'd bought a bed, bedding. I'd fallen off a chair and bruised the hell out of my knee trying to hang curtains for her. A couple of weeks before she was scheduled to be released, I received a call from the rehab saying she'd left early against their wishes. Someone had signed her out. It took me a minute to find out which traitorous friend it had been, and that they'd dropped her off back at my grandmother's house, where my uncle lived. I don't need to tell you that I wanted to pick her up immediately. I was afraid of her spending even a minute more in that house with him. So I drove the hour between the city where I was going to college and where she was. I had one condition for this arrangement. She could live with me as long as she liked, expense-free in her room, and I'd cover us with the income I made from my two jobs. The money wasn't much, it'd be tight, but I was determined to make it work if it meant keeping all the bones in her skull intact. All she had to do was not drink. She could smoke her customary two packs a day even though I hated it, but not drink. She'd been a drinker since I was a kid and had more than a handful of DUIs to her name. But I was told the alcohol dependency cleared her system during the surgery and rehabilitation that followed. In light of this, and the fact that her drinking had already cost me so much of my life and childhood and well-being, I didn't think this was too much to ask. I'd been wrong. When I arrived at my grandmother's, I refused to go in because Joe was there. I told her to come out and meet me. My personal issue with my uncle, if we overlook how many times he's put his hands on my mother, is that he tried to wrap his hands around my throat at my grandfather's funeral in 2001, while he was high on crack cocaine. I wasn't interested in a repeat performance and had stayed out of arm's reach since. My refusal to be near him was the first real boundary I'd set for myself as an adult. Turns out, I was about to set another. By the time my mom brought her things out to the car, she was pissed that I hadn't come in and helped her carry it out. A bit spitefully, I told her that if she was well enough to sneak out of a rehab hospital, then she was well enough to carry her own clothes. When we stopped at the gas station to refill my tank, she asked for money to buy cigarettes. I handed it over without complaint. Only she didn't come out with cigarettes. She came out with a case of beer. What followed was one of the few times I'd ever really screamed at my mother. But there she was in the passenger seat, with a six-pack in her lap that she'd bought with my money, 
and all those staples in the side of her head staring back at me. It was made worse by the fact that she seemed completely unable to understand why I was so upset to see her twisting the cap off of a beer. I can't do this with you, were the words that came out of my mouth before I could stop them. Don't be melodramatic, it's just a beer. It's not just a beer, look at your head, look at your effing head. And of course now I hated myself for yelling at her, for losing my temper while she sat there looking so fragile and broken. In that moment, it was clear to me that she would never change. It seemed only one of us had had enough. That nothing I did or offered would pull her out of this world. And I had a choice. I could either stay in this life with her, give up all my dreams, and just go all in with my crusade to save her. Or I could leave. I could put my energy into building the life that I had dreamed of since I was a kid. But I couldn't do both. My terrible grades and poor mental health told me as much. This was the moment, perhaps the first in my life, that I had put myself first. I chose me. I chose to believe that I could have better, could do better. I convinced myself that I tried everything I could for this woman, and it wasn't enough. It would never be enough. So I drove my mom back to my grandmother's and dropped her off at the end of the driveway told her to get out. And now, 15 years later, I have that life that I fought for. My home is quiet, peaceful. No one puts their hands on anyone else. I have a loving, affectionate partner who doesn't smoke and hardly drinks so much as a glass of wine at New Year's. I've completed graduate school twice. I launched my own independent publishing company and had published 16 novels and two books of poetry. I was the full-time author that I'd always wanted to be. I chose me. And now, my mother is dead. At 3 a.m. I wake, fitful, feeling sick. The guilt hasn't abated. Cold sweat coats the back of my neck. I try to shake this fugue of nightmares wishing they would dissolve like mist in the morning sun. I have that dropped kick feeling one gets when they wake to a terrible reality, slowly remembered. I run a hand on my face, trying to decide if I want to fight for another hour of sleep or if I'll surrender to the insomnia. The bedroom curtain sits twisted on its rod, revealing part of the dark window normally hidden from view. Through it, the full moon watches my silent debate. My mom is never going to look at this moon again. Has she ever? Surely. In the course of her 56 years on this planet, she must have stared up at the night sky, likely with a cigarette burning down between her fingers, contemplating this bright, mysterious face. Maybe on a night when she was pregnant with me sleeping inside her, she stared up at the same moon and wondered where we'd be in 20 or 30 years. Could she have imagined an ending like this for herself? There's no way I can sleep with thoughts like these. So I untangle my legs from the pug snoring on them and slip from bed, trying not to wake Kim. Downstairs in my office, I turn on the floor lamp. Soft light filters through the paper lantern shade. I pull my thesis off the shelf and reread the story I wrote about the ashtray incident. 
I shuffle through the poems I wrote about her just two days before, one ominously titled After Everything I'll Miss Her. A strange premonition to write a poem about your mother's death, 36 hours before she dies. As the poem says, if I dial her number, no one will be waiting. My mother is gone. What is left of her but our memories, our stories, those twisted threads that bind us, bound her to a past she couldn't escape. In contrast, I feel cut through. The severance so clean I can still feel my phantom limb. It's taken only one day for me to discover a terrible, overlooked truth. When someone you love dies, especially if your relationship wasn't ideal, there is a second death you must accept. There's the death of the person and the death of all the hopes you had for them. I thought I'd made peace with my mother years ago, accepted our flawed relationship, her limitations for what they were. I can see now, an invisible fist inside me opening and closing, grasping, and realize I've lied to myself. I was still holding on to us, to the dream that one day we could make it better. How will I ever accept it? How will I make peace with this sudden, final request to let go? The same way I make peace with everything, I think, and pull a yellow legal pad from my desk drawer and fish a black ink pen from its case. For a long time, I look only at the empty lines, the pen twisting between my fingers. I catch sight of the moon again, watching through a softly lit window. I write, A mother like mine isn't born, nor does she wash into the shore like some golden-haired Aphrodite from the sea foam. A woman like her is crafted slowly, by cruel, unloving hands. To understand my mother, you have to understand the ones who made her. My hand hovers above the paper. It trembles. These short lines are enough to stir memories long abandoned. Twisted, misshapen things rolling beneath the surface. I don't know if I can do this, I tell the moon. But this is what I've always done. Written my way through. I know no other way. Except it's one thing to show my pain in fiction. To trace old scars as if they belong to another body. Another mind. On such a stage, we both know at the end everything will be all right. We'll both go home and sleep soundly believing there is beauty, reason, and goodness in the world. But to tell this story will be different. It will be like undressing in front of a stranger. Can I do it? I ask the empty office. And the ghosts of my past, of my mother's past, crowd my table waiting for an answer. of Who Killed My Mother was written and produced by me, Koi Marie, and the music was also written and produced by me. 
If you enjoy my storytelling, good news! There is a lot more of it out in the world. I have over 20 published books, including novels, illustrated poetry collections, and even this show is available as a memoir to be enjoyed by yourself or by that friend who doesn't listen to podcasts. You can learn more about my work and all that I do by visiting whokilledmymother.com. If you want to do more, you can also support me on Patreon, www.patreon.com forward slash For just a few bucks a month, you'll get early access to my soon-to-be-released content, as well as exclusive content. Not to mention that your support lets me know you enjoy what I do and you want it to continue. And if you can't offer financial support at this time, that is okay. There is still so much you can do. You can subscribe to the show, leave a review of the show, or recommend the show to your friends. And I would be so grateful if you did. And last but not least, as always, thank you for listening.